I have every book that Randall Price has ever written. Literally. I mean, I'm going back now. I'm dating myself. Ready to Rebuild, The Dead Sea Scrolls, Noah's Ark, The Temple. Uh, we are in the presence, really, of uh, prophetic royalty, uh, an archaeologist, a professor, a Bible scholar, uh, somebody who we just have tremendous respect for, uh, someone we consider to be literally the world's leading expert on subjects that we find so valuable and are so important for the time we live in. There's a lot of confusion in the world of Bible prophecy today. There's a lot of voices, there's a lot of bloggers, there's a lot of pundits, a lot of opinions, big opinions, loud opinions, but truth reigns. And when you get a man who has studied and spent literally his entire life preparing for these moments, uh, preparing to bring the truth to the audience, uh, it is really a, an incredible privilege to have him here at this event, and uh, I just wanted to say thank you. All right. Well, let me wish you another good morning and a Shavua Tov. Hebrew, that means good week. You say that uh, after the Shabbat, so that uh, can come across. Uh, Bob had his uh, trip to Israel. We just came back two weeks ago, and uh, the Minister of Tourism helped us celebrate 100 trips. So that was a milestone for us. I used to live in Israel. I went to the Hebrew University. Our second daughter was born in Jerusalem. So I have a lot of background there and then worked for at least now 15 years in excavations uh, in Israel. So that's sort of the background. But we're taking a little different trip this morning. Now, not Israel, but Turkey and the search for Noah's Ark, what we now know. Now, let me uh, just remind you, since this is the last time I'll be speaking to this group, that we have a ministry, World of the Bible Ministries. Our job is to bring the world of the Bible to the word of the church because you have content and that content has a context which is for us 8,000 miles away and as much as 5,000 years ago. And in order to understand things today in the 21st century, you've got to go back to that original context and understand it there. And then you can export it and apply it where you live. And that's what we do. And he's already mentioned uh, our website worldofthebible.com. A lot of things you can download there, free Bible studies information. We update this every day with news events. So if you're trying to find out the latest things in the area of archaeology, Bible prophecy, Middle East conflict, this type of thing, uh, we've picked the, the current events for you and laid it out. I also have a resource center there at that website. A number of the other publications is just a few of the things I uh, have done and uh, make it available for you. Now let's uh, ask the question, why should we care about the search for Noah's Ark? Well, from the picture I have here, you can see I have a piece of the book of Genesis and I have it trashed because that's exactly what has happened in our modern day. The book of Genesis, which is the theological foundation for the rest of the Bible. Do you understand everything the Bible says started in Genesis? The concept of sin, the concept of salvation, the concept of the Messiah, even the concept of Abraham and, and Israel all start in Genesis. And yet it's the most maligned and attacked book in the Bible. And it's often regarded simply as fable. For instance, think of Noah's Ark. Okay, how do we think of it? You look for books in your church on Noah's Ark, you'll have to go to the children's section because that's where you usually find them. You find an ark like this, uh, with animals and giraffe heads sticking up. And in this particular one, uh, they're worried about the woodpecker. You know, what, what did Noah do about that woodpecker? Poking holes in his boat. All right, so it becomes a joke. And as a result, here's a statement by a professor at Southern Methodist University, a professor of Old Testament. He says, looking for Noah's Ark? Noah's Ark will be discovered about the same time Jack's beanstalk is found. All right, so in other words, it's simply one of those folk tales, popular myths drawn from the ancient Near East. It, it's just a metaphor. It has no real substance. Yet when we come to the scriptures, we see something very different. We see that the fact of the flood warns the world of the reality of God's future judgment, while the ark holds forth the promise of his salvation. And it, we read in Luke 17, just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with eating, drinking, marrying. We, we, everybody does that. That's, that. There's nothing exceptional about that. What is being said here is that these acts are not sinful, but they simply indicate a culture where no thought was given to God or the consequences of one action. All people were doing was the routine. We eat, we drink, we marry. You know, just going through those uh, biological imperatives of life with no thought of something greater than themselves, that they're created and in a world that's created with a purpose. And so people just stick their heads in the sand and they refuse to look at all of the fingerprints of God around them. And the flood was given for that purpose, to wake up a past generation, but to warn a future generation that the same thing will occur. So why did the flood happen? Well, let's review it just for a moment. Genesis 6, 5, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was of evil continually. And so he said he was going to blot out man from the face of the earth. Now we know there's other things involved with this. Genesis 6 talks about the sons of God. I do believe these are an angelic uh, kind of a, uh, demonic uh, manifestation that in, interbred with humanity, corrupted humanity. There's no way to get it out of there unless a flood washed it away. That's part of that. But there was one that was not so corrupted, and that was Noah. And God said, well, I'm going to blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from animals to creeping things to birds of the sky. I'm sorry I made them. But Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah and his family, eight people, were preserved to carry on the human race, just as two of each of the animals and seven of the clean animals were preserved to carry on the animal kingdom. The book of Hebrews reminds us that by faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, he didn't blow it off. He didn't suppress that information. He didn't say, well, that's your opinion. You know, I'll have to check it. He believed God, and he went and did what God said. That kind of obedient faith is what we see here. And it says, in reverence, he prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world. Because, listen, you, you do the same thing. If you believe something that is true that God says, and another person doesn't believe it, then obviously they feel condemned by what you believe. Oh, you believe I'm going to hell? Well, I, you know, there's no other place for us if we don't go God's way. You can go, you know, to heaven God's way, you can go to hell your way. But there's only, there's only one way. And, um, and so people feel condemned. And the scripture says we are a saver of life to life to those who are being saved, but a saver of death to those who are perishing. And that's just the way our lives are lived. The ark was the same thing. And that's why it's a dividing point among uh, people today, uh, particularly academicians. Uh, I'm a professional archaeologist. If I want to preserve my reputation, the very thing I do not do is get involved with a search for the ark. I guarantee you. I have, I've, been, I've had people write letters to get me fired from my university position. I've had, I'm in currently in a lawsuit uh, 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 being sued by someone who I don't even know who doesn't like my position on Noah's Ark and he has a different one, so he just sues. Uh, you know, anything's possible nowadays. But, um, and then I've been maligned, of course, by the professional uh, realms because Noah's Ark is unprovable, they believe, and on that basis, you shouldn't be involved. You're taking money away from credible excavations to be involved with these expeditions. But it's very important because uh, this is about faith. And when we look in the scriptures, it says in Genesis 7, 16, they entered the ark and as God commanded, and God closed the door behind them. This was clearly a divine act of preservation. The ark is on the water. Those who did not believe, the end of all flesh has come before God and he will destroy them. We know that the scripture says he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the land. And only Noah was left together with those who were with him in the ark. It's a terrible tale. And when people think of the Old Testament, I've had people say, I just don't like the Old Testament. It's so, it's so terrible. It's so full of, of judgment and, and warfare. And I say, dear, have you read the New Testament? 
<laughs> because same thing is there, all right? That's the human condition, and the Bible is true about it as it speaks about it. And yes, this is a terrible thing. We would not vote for this, but uh, we don't have a vote when it comes to the Lord. But if it was bad then, listen, it's not over yet. And so, as we read in Luke, as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall also be in the days of the Son of Man, the flood came and destroyed them all. We have the promise of judgment. Okay? God gave Noah the rainbow sign. No more water, the fire next time. Okay? I have some James Baldwin's book called The Fire Next Time. So there is a, a future judgment that is coming. And the ark is, uh, like the flood, demonstrates God's judgment on sin and his determination to save those who have faith. So if we remove this from our understanding of the word of God, we remove basically the gospel itself because this is, this is the purpose behind it. Can you imagine, if you don't believe that there was once a judgment like this, you don't have any concern or fear of a future judgment to come. And this is also what Peter talks about when he says the world that then was. He said, people say, where's the promise of his coming? All things are the same as it's been since the beginning of creation. He says, that's not true. And he said, I'll tell you why. You, the, the sun rises to set, but there was a day when the sun rose and the flood came. And it changed history forever. And he said, that's what you failed to notice. God is a catastrophist. He works in terms of punctuating history with these great events. And we have to see those and recognize those. Now, we look at the flood of Noah. We do have evidence. God doesn't do things without leaving some footprint behind that we can follow. If you compare all the ancient and eastern accounts, and there's quite a lot of them, uh, stretching back uh, a thousand years and more before the actual uh, event was recorded by Moses in the book of Genesis. We have all these things that describe something like the flood. And they're so similar. They talk about a raven or a dove. They'll talk about the, the large boat. They'll talk about the animals coming in. They'll talk about even afterward, uh, altar being built and prayers given. Uh, but they're written from their mythological perspective. These are people who are pagan after the flood. Eight people restarted the world uh, as Humanity multiplied very quickly. People went their own direction. Some stayed close to uh, those who would be the Hebrews in time and had this original knowledge. Others had the common history, but went in their own place and developed their own beliefs about God in the world. And so they kept the common history, but they recast it in their own religious viewpoint. That's what we find. Just a couple of years ago, a man uh, donated a tablet to the British Museum, and the keeper of the British Museum read the tablet, and it's another ark account. This is one most people don't know about, and it mentions, in this case, what none of the others mention. It mentions the animals came two by two, and that's a detail, again, found in the Bible and only here. Now, you've got other flood traditions around the world. There's at least 213 from all of the major continents of the world. They have their own unique flood account, but it's similar, and you have to ask, where did it come from? Some of these people have never even seen water. They live in deserts. They, they live in, you know, uh, Iceland or someplace like this, far out in Australia. Uh, and yet they all have similar accounts. And when you weigh these accounts together, you can see there's the similarities, despite how diverse the cultures are or the religions are, have some of the same details. Now, what uh, some people will say, particularly skeptics will say is, well, sure, but you know, these were all barred from those early tales that were given uh, by the Sumerians, the Babylonians, or the Assyrians. And I'll say, okay, remember I said their accounts are very mythological, and no one doubts that. They're, they're quite mythological. Now, history can become myth over time. So something that was historical can be turned into a myth. And myth can become more mythical as that, that story uh, is reproduced. But myth does not become more simple and believable and historical over time. And if you compare the account in the Bible to these ancient Near Eastern accounts, while the details are similar, what is missing is that mythological element. This reads very historical, very simple. Okay, God is even in one sense in the background as all the details are given. And so there's no possibility that the Bible got its information from those sources, or it would be more mythical than they are, and it's not. 
So rather we have these coming from a, a uh, independent common source in real history. Now if we look back in some of the historical accounts we have, 2,000 years ago, Flavius Josephus, a first century historian, wrote about the ark. He said, the, this flood and the ark are mentioned by all who have written histories of the barbarians. Among this, Babrosus, the Chaldean, Hieronymus, the Egyptian, author of the ancient history of Phoenicia, by Manassas and many others. This might well be the same man of whom Moses, the Jewish legislator, wrote. In other words, he said, these people all have the same traditions. But then he writes in other parts of his antiquities these things. He said, then the ark settled on a mountaintop in Armenia. The Armenians call that spot the landing place. For it was there the ark came safe to land. And they show relics of it to this day. Now remember, he's writing 2,000 years ago about things he, he already knew as historical tradition. He adds this uh, in another place. The land also possesses the remains of the ark, in which report has it that Noah was saved from the flood, remains of which to this day are shown to those who are curious to see them. Now he doesn't mean the ark itself, but he means things taken from the ark, pieces of the ark, scrapings of some of the uh, you know, tar that was on the ark that were made into amulets. He mentions that's elsewhere. And when we look into the ancient uh, record, all of the writers from the past, whether it's from 20 BC, as I mentioned here, all the way to the 5th century AD, everyone who writes about the flood in every account sees it as a global flood, as, as a judgment of God. There's no one with this idea that it was just a local place for a short amount of time. That's the common view today, even in some of our seminaries. But historically, that was never the view. Well, let's ask the question, could the ark still exist? I mean, that was 5,000 years ago. Could an ark made of wood still exist? Well, let me just say first, arks almost that old do exist. Here is one that was uh, the, the man who built the pyramids in Egypt, okay? King Cheops, the, one of the early first pharaohs. He had a boat constructed of wood, sailed up and down the Nile when he was put into his uh, tomb. They took apart three of these and they boxed them up and they put them down in pits alongside uh, the pyramid. You can go see them. This is a museum of the sunboat, solar boat, and they, re they reconstructed one of these and it's in such good shape that it could go back on the Nile and sail, but it's 5,000 years old. Okay. Now remember, Noah's Ark is not just a wood boat, it's a wood boat covered inside and out with some type of sealant material. Uh, Either it, it's made of pitch, that's the term that's used in the Bible, we don't know what it is really. Um, it's either some type of petroleum product like tar, or it's uh, something like tree sap. Okay? Um, we have, uh, which is, when, it, when applied turns as hard as a rock. In either case, this wood is already protected against time. So it's even more durable than this, and yet this survived. Now, when we talk about Mount Ararat, what does that mean? Where is Mount Ararat? Where is the place where the ark landed? And I want to do just a quick investigation with you. The scripture says in the seventh month, on the 70th day of the month, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. And people see that and they say, okay, but where, really, where is it really talking about? We have a traditional Mount Ararat, but it, are there other places? And I'm sure in other conferences you've heard people speak about this. So I want to go through some of the theories. One is a place called Mount Judy. All right, Mount Judy uh, means the highest mountain, but it is in southeastern uh, Turkey, and it's actually a very low mountain, only 6,000 feet high. And, uh, but we have some tradition connected to this because the, the Quran, the Islamic Quran, says that the ark landed on Jebel Judy. All right. Now, there's a question, and many Muslims differ with this. Some will say, well, this could be the mountain, but if it is, there's nothing there. The mountain is not covered with ice and snow uh, too often, and certainly during the summers, it's completely free of that. You can see everything that's there. There's simply nothing there. But, um, and the term Jebel Judy, the highest mountain, can also refer geographically to the highest mountain. In this case, it would be Mount Ararat, which the traditional mountain is the highest mountain that we know of in Turkey. 
Now, another site is called Duripanar site, after Colonel Duripanar, who found this looking down from a satellite. And it has an official designation as the site of Noah's Ark, if you go there. Uh, Rod and Wyatt and others have popularized this site in the past. He didn't discover it. Uh, Dave Fasshold did and wrote a book on this, and then Ron White came later and uh, kind of capitalized on that work. I've, I've been there many, many times. I've actually excavated beneath the site. Uh, I can guarantee you it is dirt from top to bottom. There's, there's no wood, there are no rivets, there's no anything else, despite what you've heard. The Turkish geologists identify this feature as the tedular mud flow. The first geologic analysis in 86 called it that, a mud flow. And if you look at it, you've got a big rock in the middle. Over time, that rock now protrudes from the middle because the mud had flowed around it. And that's how you get that boat shape. Um, and other investigations in 1988 concluded it was a rock slab of Miocene limestone. Uh, on and on. But at any rate, this is 17 miles from traditional Mount Ararat down in a valley, not up on a mountain. Okay, a very, very different idea. Well, people said, yes, but there were anchor stones. Didn't you hear about the anchor stones? Well, yes, I went and looked at the anchor stones. And these, if you look at a scientific analysis, what we know is this is part of a prehistoric observatory. These stones are many other places going back to the 6th millennium BC. And they were reused in the cemetery, put crosses on them. And uh, there's, it's not an anchor. You couldn't suspend a rock like that without tearing that top piece apart. So it's an observatory stone. They stood there. They looked through the hole uh, at the stars and made certain calculations. And that's, what, uh, that's the official understanding of these. Now, here's another thing. Uh, I had a friend that flew over, and he said, did you know that same formation that's at Drupanar is in 10 other places. These are not quite as big, but they're all there. You know, the same type of geologic formation is there. So if you find Noah's Ark at this site, you really found a fleet of them because there's a whole bunch of them, all right? Now, another popular uh, view has been Mount Suleiman in Iran. Uh, Robert Carduk and others went there to investigate this, and you see a very uh, different color rock formation, that happens to be just what it is. The question was, is this formation parts of the ark, as it would? When the material was brought back and investigated, and by the way, any geologist who's trained can just look at the picture and say, I know what that is. That is metamorphic rock, that is blocky uh, remnant of volcanic rock, and that's all it ever was, was rock. Now, it wasn't petrified wood, it was rock. Okay? There's no wood to it at all. So uh, again, but this is the process of elimination. You have to research and go through the sites and say which one are most plausible. Now, for sure, the term Ararat is drawn from Urartu. This was the ancient kingdom of Urartu until the 8th century BC. And we know the boundaries of that kingdom. So any place that is actually going to be called Ararat has to be within the boundaries of that kingdom because they took their name from Ararat. And unfortunately, you can see Iran is outside of that boundary. Uh, the other sites are within it, but we're looking for the most plausible site, which I said is the highest site because the ark landed and it was only 75 days later as the waters receded, the next tops of the mountains were seen. Now we also have the term Ararat. Uh, and what does this mean? Well, uh, you know, we said mountains of Ararat, it's plural. The Targum Jonathan, this goes back to the first century BC, interpreted the plural mountains of Ararat as two separate mountains, not a mountain chain, not a region of mountains. Two mountains would seem to be distinguished in this manner only if they stood apart from other mountains. Right? Why do I pick out two among many? Because they stand apart. And when we come to Mount Ararat, traditional Mount Ararat, you have two mountains, Greater Ararat and Lesser Ararat. And they stand on this open plain with nothing around them. And Targum Jonathan reads like this, And the ark rested in the seventh month, which is the month of Nisan, and the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Kardron. And the name of the other mountain is Kardaniah. The name of the other mountain, Armenia, because this is Armenia, the area, and there was built the city of Armenia in the land of the east. So is this 
ancient, before the time of Jesus' interpretation comes, they're reading this as this double mountain. And when we look at Mount Ararat, that's exactly what we see. In fact, the earliest references we have from Jerome going back to the fourth century says, Ararat is a remote region of Armenia through which the Araxes flows, this river. There are rustic fields of incredible fertility, the foothills of Mount Taurus, which extends this far. Therefore, the ark from which Noah was saved with his family rested at the cessation of the flood, not at an unspecified place in the mountains of Armenia, which have the name Ararat, but at the highest part of Mount Taurus, which looms over the fields of Ararat. Okay, so he says it's Mount Ararat, and a certain part of Mount Ararat. We have another historian named Philostragius in the fourth century. He says, uh, in this region of the Armenians stands Mount Ararat, so called to the present day. So it has an antiquity in terms of what it is called. Okay? And says many fragments of wood and nails of which the ark was composed are still said to be preserved in these localities. Now, the, for me, the most important thing is that while we mention other sites, no one has ever seen Noah's ark there. But when we come to historic or traditional Mount Ararat, we have hundreds of eyewitness accounts tracing from 1856 to 1993, and as I'll explain in a moment, in our current day. And here's just an example of some of these. Uh, here's a sketch in 1686 showing the ark on the northeastern side of Mount Ararat, based on local testimony. Some of the people who have seen the ark uh, may be credible, some may not be credible but uh, they've sketched out what they thought they saw. And I remember most everybody who has flown over it or been around it doesn't know the mountain. They didn't grow up on the mountain. They don't know how to explain the topography and exactly where they were. They just kind of say, I think it was on this side, but the ark was sitting on a ledge. The ark had this feature, or you could see it from, uh, from above, but not from below, all these kind of things. And when you look at all the testimonies, they pretty much are the same. Right, which is very interesting because these are very different people, but they're, they're explaining that they saw pretty much the same thing. Let's go back to 1916, the Russian expedition. Uh, they explain this. We, don't have, we have the record of this, but we don't have the pictures and other things that supposedly came from this because of the Tsar Revolution in 1918. It just was gone. Uh, this man, uh, the man I work with in our expedition, this was his personal friend. Uh, Vince Will was a pilot. He was flying with another pilot at the time, and the guy said, look down, and uh, he was at 14,500 feet, and he looked down, and a couple hundred feet below him, he saw clearly this open end of the ark, and this is the sketch he draws. He later became a believer because of this, and now was a pastor up until his death. Uh, so it was very persuasive to him. Here's another example where people have drawn it, or one like this, look at the side of the vessel, or looking down on it to where you see it sitting on a ledge. Some of the early testimonies was a man named George Agopian. He was an Armenian. Uh, his father took him back in the 1800s to the ark, he says, many times. And he said he would climb on top of it, and he describes it almost as an intact vessel. Uh, but something happened after his time. All right, we, we had an explosion, uh, not explosion, it was an earthquake uh, that opened up the area we now call the Hora Gorge, uh, destroyed a monastery, St. Jacob's Monastery, uh, and the, the village of uh, Hora at the bottom of this, and it, it probably tore up the ark at the same time and has moved it to different locations, which is why we get some different reports about it. Another man, Ed Davis, was just, in 1943, he was stationed um, in Iran, he was taken to Turkey to see this because he befriended a Kurd who wanted to pay him back and show him this thing. He didn't speak about it till later in time. It's just one of those things. He kind of thought everybody knew about it. And he was at a Baptist study school, and apparently they were talking about this. He said, well, I've seen that. What? And so uh, a man named um, Don Shockey, who was a local optometrist, this is in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, started interviewing and talking with him and said, you know, he really did see this. Uh, it became very clear that he wasn't lying, wasn't looking for publicity either. And so based on his testimony, sketches have been drawn. Here is an artist's conception of kind of the remains he, that they said he saw. Here's another example of it because there's details how snow and water and stuff uh, flow down while it's sitting on a ledge. And he says you can't see it until you get right to where it is and then you can make it out. 
Um, but of course, he didn't know the mountain. He was just led up there and then led down. Uh, anybody that's ever been up there knows the conditions are terrible. So you really, if you don't know what you're doing, uh, you can see something, but you don't know where you've been and uh, where that is. Another French explorer named Ferdinand Navarra back in the 50s uh, climbed to the Perot Glacier, which I believe is the same place Ed Davis went. I'll explain that uh, later. And um, in this area, in a crevasse, he pulled out wood, and he has on film pulling the wood out of this crevasse. Here's pictures of the wood in the area where he got it. Uh, take a look at those sites where the arrows are because we're going to be going there shortly. And uh, that uh, this wood was tested. Now, it wasn't as old as it might seem. It was old, but it didn't seem old enough to be the ark. There could be reasons for that, uh, contamination of the wood, many other things. But uh, in, in testing back in the 50s is different now than using accelerated mass spectrometry and the kind of carbon-14 real carbon dating we have today. But uh, there are others like him. A man named Jacob Kuchian, an Armenian who visited the site in the 1890s, his son gave the testimony about the, what his father had told him over and over again. And his testimony includes precise maps of how to find the location of, on, on Mount Ararat. The site is clearly on the northwest side of Ararat below the ice cap. There are approximately 10 specific details given that can be matched in satellite photos. And based on uh, another testimony, it seems likely he was in the northwest section of the mountain. Ed Davis also was there because of some of the details he gives. People have thought he was in the Hora Gorge, but he never said he was in the Hora Gorge. In fact, he even retracted it when someone said he was. He said, no, I, I, don't, I don't know anything about that. Uh, here's Kuchin's testimony. The ark, which has a reddish-brown color, rests on a type of cleft or ledge near a steep drop-off. It is surrounded by three other sides by walls of rock. The ark lies north, roughly in a north-south direction, a little uh, more to the west. It's slightly tilted to the left side and the front slightly raised. Parts of the front are missing as well as parts of the bottom. Approximately 39 feet of the front was exposed. Another part was in water and ice. So where is Noah's ark? We have all these testimonies. What can we make of that? Well, let me just eliminate one, the Hora Gorge, because this has been one of the more popular attempts. Uh, friends of mine, like John Morris and others, uh, focused on this initially, originally, looking at this. And it's such a treacherous and dangerous place to get into. This is the result of that earthquake, and it split the mountain more. Uh, we had some of our, I've been eight years now on an expedition looking for, for Noah's Ark. I've been six times to the top of Mount Ararat. We spend a month at a time up there. And so we've done a lot of research. We have some alpinists who are professional climbers, and we sent some this last, well, actually 2013, into this Ahura Gorge. Uh, and now you're looking down into the Ahura Gorge, and this is the area where people uh, believe the ark was supposed to be. And he said, there is no way. And he's one of the first people to actually get down in there like that. And he, this video, by the way, is available on YouTube. You just put in... Uh, um, well, I'm trying to think, a horror gorge or something like this and see what comes up. But he says, the movement here of the glaciers, is so, it would crush anything that was there. It's impossible that it could be there. And so we've eliminated the horror gorge, we think, because it just could not be. And all the eyewitness testimonies we know of, the reliable ones, put it on the northwest side. This is the east side. Now, our Noah's Ark expedition... Uh, started actually in 2008. This is the 2012 year. We managed to get everybody together to pose. The place we started looking, we actually had two sites. I'll explain that. But our site was up here on the eastern summit. Horror Gorge is just below us. But uh, we had satellite data and other things that indicated this was possibly the place. We also had a man who had a satellite that was a government satellite that had apparently techniques and abilities to look beneath the ice that others did not. And he said, I see these structures here. And he's an atheist. He had no axe to grind. He just said, this is what's there. So we were following that data. And here is where we were, the eastern uh, plateau. Uh, quite a climb to get there. In different years, starting in 2009, 2011, 2012, we thought we'd pinpointed the area 
because we brought uh, geophysicists up there with ground penetrating radar to look beneath the ice and snow. They said, I, I see something, I found something. So we would dig there repeatedly. Um, and in 2012, I directed the excavation of this, uh, well, we call it uh, excavation square. But it went down up to about uh, 35 feet into the glacier. Listen, you're working at 17,000 feet. <laughs> you can barely breathe, and you're, you're using you know, chainsaws to cut ice and go down 35 feet. Uh, that's a job, I can tell you. And you have to get those pieces of ice out of there without dropping them on your head because you're at least five days from a hospital if anything happened to you. So it's, a, it's treacherous work. But we thought we had found something, but we didn't. And we were quite surprised. Uh, came back the next year and started a drilling project. Uh, drilling all over. Here's that 2012 square, but it's filled in now. And uh, so this was the dig site. They came and we built a winch and put over it and drilled, because you couldn't step in it. Because the snow had filled up this hole. If you stepped in, you'd go to the bottom of the hole in the loose snow. So you had to get this winch to drill. And we drilled all the way down to bedrock, all these sites, uh, from one site to the other. I think, uh, they think 400 holes they dug throughout all these areas. And I have to tell you, we didn't find anything. Now the geophysicists, I don't know, maybe the way the ice forms creates these kind of natural looking man-made structures. We don't know. Maybe the ark was there and there's an imprint of it and it slid down somewhere else. We, we just don't know. We followed the data as best we could. We did this hard work. We spent millions of dollars spent on this kind of work to eliminate this site. And that's what we did. Now, if you saw the film, Finding Noah, it was in the theaters this last year. Now, this was based on that expedition drilling because it was hoped we would actually find it in that year. Didn't find it. So we didn't find Noah's Ark, but we did find Noah, at least the faith of Noah and the story of Noah, and that's what's told. If you saw it in the theaters, uh, this was in our local theater. Got a chance to see myself on the big screen, whatever. Uh, <laughs> But we've always had two sites for exploration. Uh, the first one we went to was a lower site, and, but because so much attention was being focused on the upper site, we went there. Now we are abandoning that site because we say it just doesn't have the evidence. So here's uh, the lower site exploration. This was back in 2008. My son's in front, I'm behind him, and we have a couple of the gentlemen. And uh, here's what it's like uh, on an expedition. Your stuff's on a horse and you're carrying your backpack and you're making your way in snow that's about up to your knees. It only takes a couple of days to, to climb straight up, you know, get there. But in this case, we went with an individual, uh, this particular Kurdish shepherd, I've kind of a, obscured his face because uh, he could be threatened if uh, too much is known about him. But he said, I saw the ark. I'm one of those that went there 40 years ago when I was a kid. Well, let me tell his story for you. This is, this is the way he does it. So this is the shepherd, and this is his story. He went to the glacier. Uh, and he went there because it was a meltback. Uh, there, there was tremendous heat, but most of the good water sources for his flocks had dried up. And as a kid, he was sent with some other kids to go look for some more watering holes. And they found this watering hole, and they looked up, and he said, I saw something that looked like a big house. And this is kind of what he describes he saw. He said there was a ridge on top. He said it was sunk deep in the mud. He said I, I had to climb up on the cliff and get on it because I didn't want to get my clothes muddy. He said that uh, about half a meter from the top, uh, there was a hole that he looked into. So he walked on top of it like this. These are reconstructed pictures, not, not actual pictures found a hole in the object and looked in. He said, I saw columns. He explains all these columns. And uh, this is an illiterate shepherd. He's never learned how to read or write, never been to school in his life. Okay, but he didn't know what he was looking at. And he wanted to go inside and his friend said, no, it might be a bear in there. So he, they didn't go. And he said, as he grew up in the mosque, he heard the story of Noah's Ark from the Quran. He said, that's what I saw. But he couldn't go back to this area because now we had the, the Kurdish separatists who are fighting for a free Kurdistan against the Turkish army and this became a war zone. And it was off limits to anyone to get in there. 
So we made it possible for him to get back in there through a Turkish general that, that allowed this. So here's the site as we climb to it. Uh, here he is pointed out where he said he thinks he saw the ark somewhere beneath that ridge. But he said it's very different. He said, I saw two ridges. And what happened, we now know, is that the military trying to get some of the Kurds in their camps up there bombed this area and brought the cliffs down, so they're missing. And you can see evidence of that at the site. Nowhere else on the mountain do you see reddish rock like this, which has been uh, affected by explosives. We had an explosive expert with us who said this is the case. And you can see new stones lying on top of the older stones. They've been brought down by some type of an explosion. So the shepherd says, here he is, he said, it's down here. Well, okay. Uh, another year we were able to go back with him, and I said, let's do an expedition uh, here. We went to the site. Now the snow and ice are gone. And we made our camp, you can see there. Here's the shepherd. We started digging a hole. He said, here, here. But he was very confused. He wasn't sure when he got there. Things didn't look familiar. When you're a kid 40 years ago, you don't remember certain things. He, the, the site is correct, but the location seems to be wrong. And it is a moving glacier after all. So if he saw something in a moving glacier, then of course it wouldn't be in the same place. He saw it 40 years before, but he said here. So to humor him, we spent 12 days digging this hole. And there's the glacier up above. There's the test hole. He's watching the digging going on. And every day we dug this, water seeped in and filled it to the top. So every morning we'd have to get up, I mean, five o'clock as early as we could and take uh, an old gasoline can, saw it over the top and dredge the water out. It took hours to get the water out that way till we could go back and dig further. But the result was there was just nothing here. And he wasn't happy about that. He said, I know it's here, but it isn't here. But let's, we'll finish the story now, okay? We've gone back since then and done research to say, could the Parrot Glacier be the place? All the testimonies seem to converge on this. Uh, the elevation fits that claimed by aircraft sightings. A tapestry in the Armenian monastery, I'll show you in a moment, has a pointer to this very spot. George Hagopian, who I mentioned earlier, who had climbed on the Ark, and Ferdinand Navarra, both placed their sightings just above the Parrot Glacier. There's a small bow valley fitting the description of eyewitnesses here and details of the route described by Jacob Kuchian uh, match this site exactly. The glacier runs through what looks like a gorge, which is why some people thinking uh, the gorge must be the horror gorge, but it's not. Uh, it's, it's perhaps this gorge. And it says it was a coal black foreign object about two thirds of the way up a mountain near a gorge but it, it fits this better than the other side. Now here's the Ikmazadin Monastery in Armenia. In there is a tapestry. And in this tapestry, ancient tapestry, uh, it shows, you can see in the background on the, on the picture, it shows now an enlargement of where uh, an arrow points to the location of Noah's Ark. If you take this and transfer it to the mountain, it's right there, the top of the Parrot Glacier. So the Armenians are the ones that say they preserve the understanding of where the Ark is. Now here's some clues placing the Ark above the Parrot Glacier. Arthur Kutchin said entire villages would climb to the Ark in the summer for worship services, beginning from the village of Artulu. And he claimed that uh, Jacob, his father, had been on the Ark. He says entire villages of Armenians knew where the Ark was. And, and I, I know that's a fact because I know many people who have helped us with this knowledge. Can't tell you more than that. But this agrees with George Agopin as well. It also fits the site mentioned on the tapestry. Okay, now here's the village of Ortulu. And if you take uh, a, a route from here, what they say, to reach the site where the ark is, you must follow a narrow goat trail beginning on the west side of the peak, approximately four feet wide. It starts out of nowhere and runs for about three miles. The goat path takes you in the direction of the snow fingers, which is on the Parrot Glacier. And uh, it's can, you can avoid this, the tremendous winds, by taking the path. And you pass Lake Coop on your left. So you see Lake Coop on the map. It's also said that if from Lake Coop, uh, there's a crater there, a meter crater. That's what formed the lake. If you stand on that, you can see the place where the ark is. But of course, you have to know what you're looking at. 
if you don't, you really can't see it. But it is visible from that point. The only thing visible from that point is, of course, the Parrot Glacier. Now, returning to Kuchian, he says the goat trail branches off in several directions at various times. From his father's directions, he says it's approximately two canyons to the east of Lake Cope. This isolated canyon that the ark is in is very difficult to locate. It's supposedly within a larger canyon, the one we have marked in red. Now, he says, after passing Lake Coop, they continued a northeasterly direction around the mountain. In doing so, the path led through several small valleys and rock walls. Sometimes they had to climb on their hands and knees as they gained altitude. By the way, I've climbed this three times now, and that's exactly what you have to do. Uh, it's that difficult. It's just straight up. And you've got these huge boulders. Uh, this is covered with snow, but when it's not, I mean, you're just climbing over rocks. And it says, then there's a right branch to a cliff overlooking a bowl. So we think this is Ed Davis's hill where he was standing when he looked down to see the ark. And these are the canyons and the things involved. Now, another Armenian, a Mr. Asturian, in his testimony, obtained through David Larson and translated from Turkish to Armenian to English, said after reaching a height of 3,574 meters, or 11,726 feet, one can go towards the ark with a narrow passageway. You come to a huge rock. In order to pass the rock, it's necessary to climb it. It's 46 feet high. Now, I've not found that rock yet because I haven't gotten to the place where this is. But uh, we, we can narrow down where it is, certainly based on satellite photos such as this. And you can see the bottleneck. You can see the huge rock further ahead in this picture. Now, uh, so here's the huge rock up ahead. It's right there at that point, and uh, all we need to do is go there. Uh, Ed Davis Canyon can be matched now to Kuchian's path, and when you, so when you pull these accounts together and all the details, you can see how they correlate. For instance, here's how their paths coincide. Uh, Davis comes from a different direction, but ends up going beside Coop Lake on, on the east, whereas from Tulu you come from the west, and you go up to the same site. Here is uh, a sketch Ed Davis made based on memory. The hill is there, and you see this water source. He saw uh, there was a melt back in his time, and snow and ice was coming down. Uh, some of the other accounts, Kuchian again, says the path will dead end at a rock wall. At this point, if one looks to the left and down, one can see the arc, which is about 100 feet down from that vantage point. Except for one time when the front third of the boat was plainly visible, the boat was completely covered by a shimmering, very clear covering of ice, so that only the huge but clear outline of the ark could be seen. Uh, there are no shimmering coverings of ice on Mount Ararat except at the Parrot Glacier. It's the only place this exists. This is a satellite picture looking down on it. Now, Navarra, he tells us, in front of us was always the deep transparent ice. We were surrounded by whiteness, stretching into the distance, yet beneath our eyes, this astonishing patch of blackness within the ice, its outline sharply defined. No more than a few yards of ice separate us from this extraordinary discovery, which the world no longer believed possible. We had found the ark. Okay, so it's the same place. And now, the evidence indicates that the huge rock is the same feature that Ed Davis referred to as a hill, because it looks like a hill, but it's actually a rock. Asturian continues, after passing the rock, you will see snow and ice water flowing from top to bottom over a ledge. At the upper end of the waterfall, there's an area of disruption. In this area, when you look to the area above the rocks, you will right away see the part of the arc that is rolled down. So, let's summarize this. The agreement of several testimonies examined allows us to identify the arc's cove or bowl with a high degree of confidence. At least three pieces of the arc are said to be visible within the bowl, an upper object projecting from the cliff at lower right, the main object leaned against the ridge at uh, left center, and possibly a second object, position which is estimated from Ed Davis' drawing. Now, I can tell you, uh, without revealing too much, that we have eyewitnesses who've seen all three of these pieces, have been to them and touched them, and that's who we're working with at the present time. Um, since our 2013 expedition, we've received additional eyewitness testimony beyond the shepherd. Shepherd was just the beginning. These eyewitnesses have pledged to take us to the Ark site. Uh, for the past two years, the Kurdish P-51 
PKK separatist conflict with Turkey has been so intense, it's been impossible to get to the region. This is because uh, this is an area where they are encamped. You go there, you'll get shot, you'll be killed. If you don't have a permit with the Turkish government, they'll shoot you. If you don't have a relation with the Kurds, they'll shoot you. So, and this whole area is off limits anyway to, to any normal person, even to shepherds uh, and local people. Um, but the danger in the area is not lessened. As you saw just yesterday or the day before, uh, 300 and something people killed in Ankara as, as the military coup was attempted. Uh, and that's, with, that's just with the Turks. Imagine what's going on with the Kurds. This has been a 30-year-plus war. The danger is not lessened, but our expedition has plans to return in the future. And I'll share one thing with you. If no one will take a picture, well, it's going to be on the film. But this is a drawing made by eyewitnesses just a year ago. Of the way they say the way the ark looks. Now it's covered with ice and snow, but uh, that can be taken care of. This is what they say it looks like. The arrow is pointing at people, so you can see the size of what's there. So we think we're close to this. I'm not going to tell you our time schedule. That would compromise what we're doing. But uh, this is what we now know. It could be because this is based on people's testimony, and I'm talking to people who say they've seen it and touched it and. You know, the wood is hard on the outside and soft on the inside and all kinds of things, but could just be a story. So mind you, until we've gone ourselves and confirmed it in an archaeological work, we can't say. But this is what we now know. What would happen if it was discovered? Henry Morris, director of the Creation Science Research Center at one time, he said, the confirmed discovery of the Ark would have worldwide repercussions. It would provide conclusive evidence confirming the global nature of the flood, which we've already said is very important for understanding and giving weight to the gospel message of the judgment of God to come and the salvation we find in Jesus Christ. And thus the mortal blow to any further belief that evolution is a scientific theory, which is why it's so opposed in, in academia today, because this is a dogma that is held as absolute truth. And this would, of course, overthrow that. And so this is what we're attempting to do. Pray for us that uh, God might grant uh, success. There's so many obstacles involved, but we're overcoming those all the time. And just pray that maybe the next time we have a conference, we'll have some great news to share. Thank you. Thank you.